Good morning. So something that I ask of my church, every once in a while, is that when I preach, um, I trust that my church is praying for me throughout the week, but one thing I ask is that when I'm preaching that my church also prays for me while I preach. Um, that as I'm preaching, that you would pray that I would, uh, that nerves would fall away, that I'd stay focused, that, uh, and also for the congregation, that the hearts would be open. So just as I'm preaching, if it comes to your mind, uh, just shoot up a prayer for me as well, because uh, better late than never, right? <laughs> so, uh, today, uh, because we like your name so much, my church decided to go through the book of Genesis. And we are working our way through, and this is part two of uh, a two-part series on Genesis chapter three, obviously, the fall of humanity, the fall of Adam and Eve. And what we're going to see today is that sin wrecks many relationships. It's going to wreck a whole bunch of stuff, and the author is clearly trying to get this point across. Sin is total and complete destruction of everything it touches. That's what we're going to see today. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Genesis 3, 7 to 24. Genesis 3, 7 to 24. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. Sorry, the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. In your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Oops. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothing. And the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Church, this is the word of God. You may be seated. So, Adam and Eve. We're obviously picking up right after uh, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they were not supposed to eat of. But they ate of it because they were pitched a promise. A promise that said, do you want to be like God? Do you want to have all this crazy wisdom and knowledge? Do you want that? Eat. And so they did. But Adam and Eve were pitched a promise, yet the reality of that promise was completely different than what they thought. Like I said, they thought they were going to get this crazy knowledge and they were going to be like God, but they weren't. Their eyes were opened, but they weren't like God like they thought they were going to be. And if you're like me, if you were kind of pitched that promise, you would assume, well, is it going to be like, I'll know everything? Will it be able, or will I be able to create like God? Will I be able to stand like God and think like Him? That's what I assumed. But yet Adam and Eve ate, and that's not what they got. They ate of the tree, and their eyes were opened. And so it begs the question, what is this tree that they ate from? What is the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Now, out of all the possibilities or the theories, the one that I believe, or the one I'm convinced of, is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil represented autonomous morality. Autonomous morality, that being Adam and Eve made decisions for themselves. They defined what is good and what is evil in their own minds. Because before they ate of the tree, they were living in God's world, where God defined, hey, this is good for you to do, and this is evil for you to do. Yet as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they were now God, and they got to say, okay, but this is going to be good for me to do now, and this is going to be evil for me to do. Autonomous morality. This theory that I'm convinced of also lines up with the last part of this chapter, where God says, behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Man has become like one of us. He is now defining good and evil for himself. It's no longer me, God, who created them and created this world that's saying, this is good, this is bad. It's now man saying, what is good and evil. And this is ultimately what all sin boils down to. Every time you or I sin, whether it's a big sin or a small sin, you and I play God. We play God because we say, well, I'm going to say this is good for me to do now. Whether it's an internal sin like lust or unforgiveness, or it's an external sin like gossip and lying, when you and I sin, we play God and we define for ourselves what is good for me to do and what is evil for me to do. We can dress it up however we want, but that is ultimately what sin boils down to. And the first thing we see here when Adam and Eve, sorry, when Adam and Eve sin is that they play God and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And this introduces us to the first two new emotions that Adam and Eve would have felt. Shock and shame. Their eyes were opened and they go, oh my goodness, I'm naked. Oh my goodness, you're naked. And instead of being a husband and a wife where there is one flesh and there of unity and of peace together, there is now shock and shame at each other's nakedness. No longer being together, but now driven from each other. This is the first relationship that we see broken when sin is brought into this world. The relationship between husband and wife is fractured. But not only is their relationship fractured, 
We also see other designs that God had for Adam and Eve fall away too because they sewed fig leaves together to make for themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden too, as Genesis chapter 2 says, to work and to keep the garden. They were meant to cultivate it and take care of the garden. Yet, as soon as sin is brought in, it's no longer Adam and Eve saying, what am I supposed to be doing here in the garden? It's, how do I cover up what I've done? Now, we've just been through fall, and we know you can't really sew together dead, brittle leaves on the ground, so these must have been ripe leaves that Adam and Eve are ripping off of the trees around them. The trees that they're supposed to take care of, the trees that they're supposed to cultivate, and yet now Adam and Eve are saying, okay, forget that, I'm going to take this to cover up my sin and my shame. I'm sure if you're like me, whenever you let sin go unchecked in your life, your responsibilities become secondary. I know if I think about the times when I have sinned, whether it's been just a sin that I've kept short accounts with between me and God, or I've let go undealt with for a period of time, I know my responsibilities, whether that be a husband, father, pastor, or just a man of God, those responsibilities are secondary when I let sin in my life. I'm not worried about upholding those things as I am trying to cover up or downplay what I just did. And I believe that's what Adam and Eve are doing here. The responsibilities of taking care of the garden, they're just secondary. How do I cover up what I have done? How do I make this kind of go away? And who knows how long Adam and Eve took trying to figure out how to sew these fig leaves together. Because at some point, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve took some amount of time sewing these fig leaves together because by the time the cool of the day rolls around, which I assume is the later afternoon, I hear footsteps. It's not Adam's, it's not Eve's, so it can only be God's. And now they hear God coming in, fig leaves aren't enough to cover their shame. They have to physically hide themselves from the presence of God. Because this is what sin does. Not only has sin distorted the husband and wife relationship, not only has it fractured and broken man's responsibilities, but ultimately, sin separates us from the presence of the God who loves us. And we know this. Sin separates. The Bible talks about this. These are just three passages that talk about how sin separates, alienates, and separated us from the loving God who gave his only son. Sin makes distance. When you play God, when I play God, when you define what is good and evil for yourself, we separate ourselves from God, and this is what we can do. We can make separation between us and God, but ultimately, nothing you or I can do can close that separation. Only Jesus can. Amen? Amen? A little back and forth. That's okay. <laughs> Sin ultimately leaves us helpless, hopeless, and isolated from the loving God and Father. And God knows. He knows what Adam and Eve did here. He knows they ate. He knows where they're hiding. And he knows that Adam has now separated himself from his presence. And God says at the end of our chapter, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and Eve live forever. This is what I believe God sees. God sees Adam and Eve's sin and separation is instant. And God says, okay, that's not how it was meant to be. I wasn't meant to have separation between them. But that's not how it's going to stay. 
So lest he go and take now from the tree of life and live forever separated from me, I gotta drive him out of the garden. I'm not gonna let my creation live forever separated from me. So in a loving act, our God drives Adam and out from the garden and says, you're not gonna live forever separated from me. We, being on this side of the cross, we know, um, we know the mystery of salvation. We know Jesus came to bring us back into right relationship with God, not a separated state. Our Jesus did that for us because we were seen as valuable. And if we were to talk about salvation using just Genesis 3 language, it's this. When we come to Jesus, we must confess that we have played God. God, I have tried to be God. I have made my own decisions of good and evil. I have made my own boundaries, my own limits of what good and evil are. And I confess that I have done that. There's confession, we also must repent. And repentance is saying, God, no longer am I going to live within my own boundaries of good and evil, but I'm going to live within your boundaries. What you define as good, what you define as evil. There has to be confession and repentance when we come to God. But as we go back to our verses, and our chapters, we see that the loving heart of God comes out in full swing here. In verse 9, God knows what's happened, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? That's what I love. Like I said, God knows what happened. He knows where they are. But God doesn't come out in a huff and a puff and casting lightning bolts. He comes out with a question. Where are you? A question that draws out conversation rather than drives out in fear. God doesn't want to shut down communication with his creation. God never wants to do that. And so what these questions do, they seek to draw out confession from Adam. Hey, where are you? Come on, let's talk. What have you done? God wants this communication because he fully understands the weight of sin, how that will play on someone. This may be the first sin, but God still understands what the weight of conviction will be like. And you and I know what that conviction feels like, and so does King David. King David in Psalm 32, 3 and 4 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. King David was a wreck and undone because of his sin. The conviction was heavy upon him, and you and I know what that feels like, but imagine how Adam and Eve would have felt. Never feeling that kind of conviction before, and then as soon as they eat, feeling the weight of the hand of God being upon them. That weight being to drive them to con confession, hopefully. And yet a loving God walking in the garden, seeking his creation, saying, hey, where are you? Let's talk. But Adam doesn't come up and say, here I am, this is what I have done. Because Adam's faced with the third new emotion that he feels. Because he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear. Adam felt fear from God. Not a fear that's a holy fear that kind of drives him to God, to worship God, but scared he was scared of the God he once walked with, the God he once laughed with. That God who created me now doesn't want to be around because he is afraid of him. 
1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Perfect love may cast out fear, but apparently, perfect fear can also cast out love. Adam isn't reminded of the love of this God. He is just afraid of him. But our loving God, although punishment is coming, he doesn't jump right into that. He doesn't jump into punishment because he wants that communication with Adam. So he continues on. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This is the heart of God right here. We have a God who constantly draws us back into communication with them, even when we sin. Even when, we sin, even when we've made the separation, it is our God who seeks us. Our God not just seeks Adam and Eve, and not just seeks the Israelites, seeks us now when we've sinned. He's the one who draws us back into communication. That's what I believe these questions are doing. The loving heart of God is going, Adam, where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? Talk to me. That's what God wants. And all throughout the Bible, our God has this message. He is wanting his people to enter back into a conversation with him, to repent and turn to him. All throughout the Bible, God is saying, seek, return, repent. He's beckoning and begging his creation, come back to me, let's talk. You don't have to stay in this state separated from me. These are the last uh, seven prophets of our Old Testament. Both major and minor prophets, whether it's a big role or a small role or just three chapters or 60 chapters, God is calling his creation back to him, the weary and burdened by sin. Come on, there's still time. And after Zephaniah, there's roughly 400 plus years of silence. And what is really cool is that as soon as Jesus shows up, he continues right where he left off. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There may have been 400 years of silence, but the message of God still remained the same. Come on. There's still a good God who wants to be made right with you. Whether it's 400 years of silence or 2,000 years of church history, our God still has the same message for you and I. Come on, seek me. Turn back to me. Repent. That message is for us and for all those people in this neighborhood. If only they could know about the God that continually beckons them into conversation with them. Isn't that what we all want? Them to know that God just wants to talk to them? Yes, these prophets called more directly for confession and repentance to God. And back in our text, God is asking and drawing conversation, almost pulling teeth, Adam, please talk to me. And Adam does talk to him, but he doesn't say, yeah, I ate Adam does what you and I would probably do when we try and shift blame and point the finger, and he says, <clears throat> the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. <clears throat> Nobody likes to own up to when uh, we've done something wrong, which is why we can relate with chapter, or verses 12 and 13. Whenever we're caught, or something doesn't go right, where we've sinned, it's perfectly natural, I mean it's good, but it's natural for us to try and shift the blame and point the finger. Whether that's something at work you signed off on and it fell through, or it's a 
school work project or it's something with your kids and it doesn't go right. It's, we try to shift the blame as much as possible. That's what Adam and Eve do here. But when Adam shifts the blame and points the finger, he says, hey, God, it's the woman that you gave to me. And in a rash statement by Adam, he doesn't just blame the woman, but he blames the God who created him, saying, God, you are the one who made me sin. Adam should have just said, yeah, it was me. I sinned. But he made the loving father the perpetrator of sin. <clears throat> this is my pastoral push, which is what I said to my church. If you've messed up at work, or you've messed up with your kids or your spouse, or whether it's just between you and God, and you have messed up, Take a deep breath, be a mature believer, and own up to it. Don't sidestep it, don't point the finger, don't downplay it. Be a mature believer, and go make it right. Whether it's between you and God, you and your boss, you and your spouse. So that's what we ultimately do whenever we take communion, isn't it? We want to examine ourselves to make sure that we're right? It's tough. That's what Adam should have done, should have just owned up to it. We have a good God who will hear us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen? <laughs> God will hear us. But just because he hears us doesn't mean there won't be um, consequences for our actions. Because here's what God does. Okay, Adam. Did you eat of the tree? Adam was, yeah, it was, it was the woman, though. And God hears out Adam. He says, okay. And he goes to Eve and he says, Eve is this so, and at least Eve is honest. And she says, yeah, I was deceived by the serpents and I ate. And God goes, okay. This is what's cool about God. Oh, we see our place in kind of the whole hierarchy of creation. Adam sinned, and so God goes to Adam and he hears Adam out. Adam points a finger at Eve and God goes, okay. He hears out Adam, he goes to Eve and he hears her side of the story. And he goes to the serpent, but he doesn't let the serpent talk. The serpent doesn't get the ear of God that you and I do. This is what I said to my church. There's a difference between an image bearer and a bear. You and I were created, the others were spoken into existence. We have the ear of God. We have a special place in the heart of God. And so God hears out Adam, he hears out Eve, he goes to the serpent, and there's no chance for communication there. It's just straight punishment. And he pronounces judgment on the, on the serpent. He goes to the woman and he says, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. This is what God does. He's going to pronounce judgment on both the husband and the wife here. Both of the punishments are targeting the greatest fulfillment that both a wife and a husband can have, provision and childbearing. He says to the wife, you're going to have more pain in childbearing. It's going to be greatly increased. And I've heard that's true. But, you know, not a woman. <laughs> it's going to be great pain in childbearing. It's going to happen. But, you know what's really cool about this? Here's what God didn't say the punishment was. You're not allowed to have kids anymore. God didn't take away the wife's ability to have kids. That's really cool. Because God said early on when he first made them be fruitful and multiply, he's not going back on that. He's just saying it's going to be more difficult now. 
I'm sure with the moms in the room, if I were to ask you, even on your worst day, the worst day of parenting where it's just all gone off the rails and nothing's going your way with your kids, I'm willing to bet that nothing compares to you having those kids, amen? You can say amen. These kids are good and kids are great. And there's something we championed on and protected, amen? Kids are good. God loves the kids, and he wants Adam and Eve to still have these kids, which is why he says there's just going to be more pain. But even as God is pronouncing this judgment on Eve, here's what God is expecting. He's still expecting them to have kids. That's still the expectation of the wife. There may be more pain, but there will certainly be more kids. But on top of increased pain and childbearing, there's a second part to this punishment and he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. For us to understand this, we've got to look at the word desire there. If you're taking notes, just write uh, Genesis 4, 7. Because this is where we see that word show up again. This is the next chapter where Cain and Abel, they bring their offerings before God, and God accepts Abel's, and he doesn't accept Cain's. And Cain gets upset, and he gets mad, and he gets depressed. And God comes to Cain, and he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if not, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, you must rule over it. It's the same word. That word is only used two, maybe three times in your entire Bible. It's always this type. God says, there is a desire that you have, Cain, and it's contrary to you. It's not a good desire but it's one that you can rule over. It's not a desire that you have to submit to. It's one that you can fight back. It's the same word that he's using with Eve. He says, your desire will be for your husband. It's not a good desire. It can be conquered, but it will be your desire now to be contrary, to be against, to be over your husband. But in the second part of that, he says, your husband shall rule over you. And that's not a good rule either. That's not a biblical rule. That is a tyrant, iron fist over the relationship type rule. This is another expectation that we see in, or sorry, temptation we see in a husband and wife relationship. The wife will want to rule over the husband, and the husband will have the temptation to rule with an iron fist. When sin is brought into the world, it is completely and utterly destructive of everything it touches, Unfortunately, the husband and wife relationship takes a lot of that run, takes a lot of that fight. But just as Eve's punishment was targeted towards her fulfillment as a wife, so too does the husband's punishment target his fulfillment as the husband. And as we take a quick skim through Adam's punishment here, we see that the word eat shows up a lot. And three of those times, it's in direct relation to his punishment as provided. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat by the sweat of your face you shall eat. Back in the garden, we know from Genesis chapter 2, God said, I've given you every tree that is good for looking at and good for food. There is no hunting and gathering. There is no um, worry about where they were going to eat when they lived in the garden in peace. But now God says, now that you've got a sin of the world, I'm going to drive you from the garden. It's going to be work. It's going to be tough. 
It's going to be tough for you to eat. It's going to be tough for you to provide, Adam, for your family. But again, just like God said to Eve, you know, I'm not taking away your ability to have kids. It's just going to be more difficult. So too here does God say, I'm not taking your ability to provide for your family, Adam. I'm not taking that away. It's just going to be more difficult now. And this is our role as husbands. We're to provide for our families. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's our role, husbands. We must provide for our families. But you might be thinking, well, I don't really work with, um, I don't work with my hands and I don't have a physical job. I work behind a computer screen or I work behind a desk. So I say, you still feel it. You still feel those days. You still fear or feel the pain of working to provide for your families. Ecclesiastes 2.23 says, For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even at night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. <clears throat> Here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Well, you work physically or work with your mind or you work however... The heart doesn't stop. Your mind is going a mile a minute when you put your head on the pillow. You feel the work as you feel the weight of being a provider to provide for your family. If there's single people in the room, if there's single people that are listening, here's what we take away from this. As we look at this section of scripture, this Genesis 3 of punishment here, we we can know what to expect when we enter into this marriage union. Whenever we find somebody, we enter into those marriage relationships. This is what we can expect. Wives, obviously, expect pain in childbearing. I don't think that's a surprise for anybody, so. <laughs> expect pain in childbearing. Men, when you enter into a, a marriage relationship with your wife, expect a greater challenge in providing for that family. And both husband and wife, whenever you find somebody and you commit yourself and you enter into that marriage relationship, expect the temptation for a power struggle. Expect the temptation to rule over your husband and expect the temptation to rule ruthlessly as a husband. That's the warning that we can see from the punishments here. But here's what we also see God expecting from a husband and wife. From Genesis 15 to, or sorry, 16 to 19, God expects from a marriage relationship, he expects the wives to bear children and the husbands to provide for said family. And now I am fully aware of how that statement sounds in our culture. Well, that sounds sexist, that sounds this, that, and the other, and I hear that. But take off your cultural lens. Take off your Canada 2022 lens as you hear that statement, and hear that statement from the heart of God. God expects Wives to bear children and husbands to provide for the family. This is the heart of God. God is pro-family. He is pro-kids. And he is pro-having that family provided for. Malachi 2.15. What is the one God seeking? Godly offspring. This is what our God expects. And I want to end with... Uh, I want to end with prayer here before we go into lessons. Just a private response time between you and God. There's 60 seconds in the seat. <clears throat> Maybe there is something said in this last little bit about 
um, or this morning, something that doesn't sit well with you. Maybe it's that last part about husbands and wives that doesn't sit well with you. Or maybe you have questions about interpretation, maybe that being um, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Maybe you have a different conviction about that. Whatever you are wrestling with internally right now, let's take some time, let's bring that before God. Let's wrestle with that with God right now. Or maybe you need to pray because you just need to own up to something with God. Something you've tried to downplay or something that you haven't been totally honest with God about lately. Let's just take 60 seconds and respond to God. Ask Him questions. Respond to God. Hear the heart of God that is drawing us into communication. 60 seconds or so, just between you and God to respond, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you're a good God who gives good gifts, and we're grateful for the gift of your word, that we can have your word in front of us, and we can read it, and we can study it. And I pray, God, that we would be changed by what we have heard, or that we would have, add, we would have added to our knowledge of your word today, God. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room that as we walk away from today, we would walk away, hopefully, better understanding Genesis chapter 3. That we would better understand or have a more fuller picture of um, your heart, that you call us. You are the God who calls back to communication, to repentance, to confession. Now, God, would you bless our time and dialogue? Give us wisdom, give us patience. Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, I got five lessons for us this morning. One, sin is defined, sin is when we define what good and evil are for ourselves. That is ultimately what all sin is. We can dress it up however we want, we can downplay it, but that is what sin is. You define what is good for you to do, what is evil for you not to do, rather than letting God do it. Two, sin separates us from relationships, responsibilities, and ultimately from God. That's what we see in our text. It separated Adam and Eve, it separated man and responsibility, and it ultimately separated them from God as they tried to physically hide themselves from God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ephesians talk about the, uh, the separation, the alienation that we make when we sin between us and God. <clears throat> Three. We have a loving God who draws us back and who will not leave us separated from him. God wasn't going to let Adam and Eve stay separated from him forever, which is why he said, I'm not going to let them now go and eat at the tree of life. They're clearly not listening to me, so I'm going to drive them out. Isaiah to Matthew there, the text where God is constantly saying, seek, turn, repent. God is calling, God is drawing us continually back to him. That is the great call of our Bibles. And 1 John 1.9 is, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins from all righteousness. Four, what we can expect from a marriage relationship based on Genesis 3, 16 to 19, A, or one, increased pain in childbearing for wives, increased difficulty for providing for husbands, the temptation to struggle with power. That's what we can expect in a marriage relationship based just off of this one chapter. And finally, five, God is pro-family, pro-kids, and expects them all to be provided for. 
Ephesians 5, 22 and 33 there is where God, or where Paul is talking about the proper, um, proper relationship for a husband and wife. Uh, wives meet your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, that Malachi 2.15 that I quoted at the very end, um, that one's really cool because Malachi is basically just, he's laying into the Israelites for just not going God's way. And he has, a, I think there's five things throughout that whole book that he's just constantly calling out to Israel. You haven't done this, you haven't done this. And this one specifically is, you guys have been horrible parents. You guys have been horrible in this marriage relationship. He's, he's talking about God brought a man and a woman together and there's God between them. And that marriage union is supposed to bring forth kids. And that's why he says in 2.15, what is the one God seeking? Godly offspring. It's cool to think that us as parents, when we raise godly kids, God says, found it. I found it. I found a godly offspring. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And all God's people said, Amen.